If you would again take out your Bibles and let's turn for our New Testament reading to Ephesians chapter 1. And we'll be reading verses 3 through 14. And then our text for our sermon today is actually going to be verses 13 and 14. And we, I'm doing this uh, as we've, I've read this. This will be the third time reading it all through because, again, verses 3 through 14 are one long run-on sentence in the Greek. Paul, of course, was known for his run-on sentences. And so it is good uh, for that reason to read it all. But it's also good to read it because this is, it's really Trinitarian nature. It's really talking about the work of the Father, the Son, and now also the Holy Spirit, which we'll be studying today. So, Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we, also, uh, in him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of His glory. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Eternal Father, who at various times and various ways spoke to us through the prophets, but in these last days has spoken through your Son, the incarnate Word. We pray that you would open the mouth of your servant to proclaim that Word in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that that same Spirit would open the hearts of the hearers here now assembled to receive your Gospel, and that you would write your Word on our hearts. Teach us, comfort us, conform us to Christ. All this we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All of us have at one time or another made promises. When we make promises, we're saying 
that we will fulfill the obligations of whatever it is that we had promised. For big promises, there may be something of value attached to it, a a symbol. When couples get married, for instance, they take vows, they exchange rings. These act as symbols of their commitment to one another. If you've ever made a major purchase, say a, a home or a car, and you took out a loan, you probably signed a promissory note. You promised that you would repay in full the money which you borrowed for that purchase. In making this agreement, you also likely made a down payment of some sort. This down payment is the first installment in what you were going to pay. Now these ideas illustrate, to some, in some sense, something of what God has done in giving us the Holy Spirit. God has made promises to His people. He has promised us eternal glory in Christ, and the Holy Spirit is given as a sort of first fruits, a down payment, if you will, which guarantees the fulfillment of His covenant promises. Those who have been redeemed by Christ, having been born again, made new creatures in Christ, having their heart of stone removed, and, a new, and been given a new heart of flesh, they have been filled with the Holy Spirit of God as a guarantee of the fact that you are a blood-born child of God and have part and parcel in, in His inheritance. The work which had been decreed by the Father before the foundation of the world had been accomplished by the Son is brought to completion through the Holy Spirit. And so as we look again at our text, this first chapter of Ephesians, we see this last piece of this this marvelous spiritual blessing which are from the heavenly places, that is, the sealing and the guaranteeing work of the Holy Spirit. And so as we look at our text, uh, the Apostle Paul, having declared the purpose of God in verse 10, namely, the bringing of those who are redeemed into one body, then says in verse 11 that God's purpose was first realized among the Jewish Christians, but then adds another group in verse 13, and that is the Gentile Christians, And this is made clear by the words, In Him you also. So although the first century Jewish believers were the first to hope in Christ, they were to the praise of His glory, God's people were not to be confined only to the literal children of Abraham. So that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, that speaks of the Jewish Christians, verse 12, was to be joined by the you also, in verse 13, which speaks of the people of the nations, the Gentiles who trust and rest in Jesus Christ for their salvation. In fact, it was Gentile Christians for whom this letter was specifically being addressed, namely the believers in Ephesus. Paul wants to assure them that they too share in God's promises and in the inheritance of God. They are fully brothers and sisters 
in the covenant promises which were made to Abraham. They have been adopted into the family. They have been grafted unto the tree, as it were. This is the illustration that Paul uses in, in Romans. You and I as Gentiles were as wild olive branches which have been grafted into the, the cultivated olive tree, which is spiritual Israel. We're not the natural children of Abraham. Nevertheless, through the predestining love of the Father, we have been adopted as children of God by faith. And thus, we share in all the promises and all the spiritual blessings and all of the spiritual benefits of the children of God. So Paul has been uh, talking about this all the way back to the beginning of the chapter. And capture the idea another way. Jesus, in John chapter 10 and verse 16, uses the language of other sheep that are not of this fold. That is, other sheep, he says, which must also be brought in. I must bring them in also, Jesus says. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Again, the gathering of other people, speaking of the Gentiles, but into one flock, one body, one spiritual Israel, one church, one people of God. Believers are being gathered together in union with Christ as an inheritance to the praise and glory of God. And this all came to fruition, look at verse 13, when you heard the word of truth. When you heard the word of truth. You and I became sheep in the fold of Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, when we heard the word of truth. That is, the proclamation of the gospel. You see, hearing the gospel is important for belief in the gospel. Paul makes this point in Romans chapter 10. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they going to hear without someone preaching? How is the unbeliever to become a believer? Through the hearing of the word of truth. You see, those who are lost in their trespasses and sins must be conformed with the truth of the word of God. Now, what is the word of truth? That is spoken of here. Paul gives us sharper focus. Look at, looking at it, verse 13, when he says, the gospel of your salvation. What Paul is talking about here is the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ, which leads to the salvation of men and women, boys and girls. See, Jesus, the Son of God, was born into the world, born of a woman, born under the law, lived the perfect righteous life, fulfilled all the obligations of the law, took our place, bearing the penalty of the cross on behalf of all those who trust and rest in Him alone. The gospel of your salvation is the good news of reconciliation with God the Father through God the Son and people who trust in Him. See, in order for some to hear, there needs to be proclamation. Words must move forth. 
so Paul is talking about the objects of evangelism. The proclaiming and then the hearing of the word of truth. Understand this, though. Evangelism is not just about giving general information about God. Sort of a generic uh, thing about God. The word of truth is not simply arguing over God's existence. It's not hitting people over the head with the, the moral law. Although the moral law ought to be a part of what we present. We certainly need to be lawful. We need to use the law lawfully in order to show people their need for salvation. But we shouldn't just stop there. We don't, we don't just tell, tell people, well, you're just, you're just really horrible and you just get your right life and then start coming to church. That's really getting it backwards. The law should not ever be presented without the gospel. The law and the gospel go together so inseparably. Our need for salvation is made clear when we see that we have failed to keep even the most basic points of God's law. But when we engage in evangelism, we present the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of truth, then, is nothing less than the fact that Jesus came to save sinners. That he came to reconcile. Jesus came at a particular time in history to save a people who were lost outside of him and in a state of sin and misery and under the wrath and curse of God. Beloved, we preach Christ crucified and resurrected, the living and reigning King of kings and Lord of lords. And so what Paul is saying is that when the Ephesians heard the word of truth, when they heard the gospel of salvation, they were fundamentally changed. And the same thing can be said of you and I as well, can't it? When you, the people of southern Missouri, of West Plains and surrounding communities, heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you were changed. You were given a new heart. You were given a new spirit, as we read in Ezekiel 36. Your heart of stone was removed, and you were given a new and transformed heart so that you could walk in his ways. You see, hearing the word of, the tr- of truth is transformative. But hearing alone, hearing in the sense of, of sound coming into your ears and vibrating your eardrum, is not, is not enough. Just, just hearing it is not enough. You see, there's plenty of people who hear the gospel preached. Who, who hear the words of truth, but yet remain unchanged. Hearing words is not enough. In fact, there are sadly people who spend their entire lives going to church, hearing the scriptures read, hearing it preached, and yet are never moved. It's tragic for one to taste and see the goodness of God through the ordinary means of grace, through hearing the word read and preached and yet never coming to faith. It's very sad. Simply hearing the sound of words is not what Paul is talking about here, though. What must accompany the hearing of the word of truth is belief in Christ. Look at the accompanying clause of verse 13. They heard the word of truth and believed in Him. Now one thing that's worth noting 
is that these two verbs, to hear and believe, are both temporal. That is to say, they deal with time in terms of their syntax. Now I mention this to point out that what is being expressed here are actions, hearing and believing, which are said to be occurring at the very same time. In other words, at the time you heard, that is to say, at the time you truly had ears to hear, you also believed. And so as Paul will go on to say, you were also then sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, what are we saying? In your salvation, there is hearing the word of truth and believing the word of truth. And those two actions occur at the very same time. Now, why is this important to understand? Why do we need to, why do we need to know that? Well, Paul wants the Ephesian Christians, and he wants you and I to, uh, as well to understand that we have no reason to doubt our inclusion into Christ and all of his benefits. You can know that you're in Christ, and you can be assured that you are a partaker of all of his benefits because you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your, of your salvation, and you believed him. This is, our, this is our comfort, isn't it? This is how the gospel is a comfort to us. Because sometimes we have seasons where we lack assurance. Or, or, or times we wonder, am I really a Christian? Do I, do I really believe this stuff? We all have that at times. Well, did you hear the gospel and believe? Jesus said in John three fifteen that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. If you believe, you can be assured. Now, am I being too simplistic? Perhaps. There are plenty of nuances we can add to this, such as walking in spirit, producing the fruit of the spirit, making your election sure, and so on. But these are all things which are related to believing. Remember the purpose of a new heart in Ezekiel 36 is so that you may walk in my statutes. You see, those who believe will also be those who bear fruit, who do the works of righteousness, which is an indication of true saving faith. You and I do the works of righteousness, Paul says later in Ephesians 2, because we're God's workmanship created for good works. So true, saving faith is vindicated by the good works, which we do. This is what James argues. And so here's the basic point. People must hear, and they must believe in order to be saved. They must trust and rest in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. Hearing and believing go hand in hand to those who are saved. And those who do are also, look what it says, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You see, the contemporaneous actions of hearing and believing, that is, actions which are happening simultaneously, are joined with another action, that is, the work of the Spirit sealing those who believe. Those who hear the gospel, those who believe by faith, are also sealed by the Spirit. Now, 
What does this mean? What does it mean to be sealed by the Holy Spirit? Well, to answer this, we first need to consider the several purposes of a seal. First of all, a seal is used to authenticate something or to confirm something as genuine and true. For instance, a, a seal might be used on a letter which is sent from a king to prove, prove it's authentic. Or uh, perhaps if you, uh, if you were to receive a letter from uh, the governor of Missouri, it may be stamped with a seal from the state of Missouri. It shows that this is an authentic letter. Second, a seal is used to mark something as one's property. For example, you may put your name in your books of your personal library. Or you might write your name on equipment that you own, particularly if you lend it out. This is one of the reasons I write my name in my books. Because I tend to lend them out and then I never see them again sometimes. Maybe you've had that experience. I just end up buying new ones. And I hope, I hope they benefit from the book I gave them. But you understand. It's why you write your name in things. Because, you, well, you would like your property back. That, that marks it out as belonging to you. Third use of a seal is used to render something as secure. Now, this is sort of old-fashioned, right? Because we don't send things in the mail. But if you were to send a letter in the mail, you may lick the envelope... And enclose it so that what's inside doesn't get lost in the mail. The United States Postal Service gets enough blame for things, right? You want to seal your envelope because you want what's in there to remain in there and be delivered. So all of these uses of a seal, the authenticating, the the marking of ownership, the, the securing, these are all true senses in which a believer is sealed by the Spirit. We are authenticated as the true children of God by the Spirit. God places His mark on us as authentic believers. Romans 8.16 The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We belong to God. Because we belong to God as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, 1 Peter 2, 9, God seals us as his, his people, his chosen race. We can be certain of our salvation. We are secured by the Holy Spirit. That we will, in fact, be saved and that there is nothing which can break in and steal us We can rest in Christ. So those who are Christians hear the gospel, believe the gospel, and are sealed by the Spirit. And these these three things happen simultaneous to one another at the moment of conversion. The Holy Spirit fills, fills us, helps us, changes us. The Spirit applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ, while also making us faithful witnesses of Christ and sealing us until the last day. You see, the Holy Spirit then is a great gift to God's people. We were redeemed from the curse of the law so that we would receive the indwelling Spirit which leads us to truth, builds us in holiness, provides comfort to us, and assures us of our eternal life. And this, beloved, is 
the marvelous spiritual blessings which are ours from the heavenly places. These are the promises God has given us. These truths, beloved, ought to make us ponder with great joy. We we should stand amazed. But that's just verse 13. Paul goes on. The same Spirit, Holy Spirit, who is a seal to those who believe is also the guarantee of our inheritance. What does this mean? What does it mean that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance? Well, Charles Hodge explains it this way. He says, the Spirit is, quote, the foretaste and the pledge of all that is laid up for the believer in heaven, end quote. The term, the term guarantee is actually a commercial term uh, used in trade. It denotes a pledge and transaction. You know, a buyer may leave uh, an item as collateral, as a, as a guarantee, until that which is owed is paid in full. Now, a biblical example of this is seen in Genesis chapter 38, with the transaction between Tamar and Judah. Judah leaves his staff at cord and signet as a pledge until he can return and make full payment. Now, I know what you're thinking. If you know this story, you might already want to go look it up real quick. Because you're trying to remember all the details, so I'm going to save you the trouble. If you're thinking that the transaction between Judah and Tamar was prostitution, you would be correct. Judah had made an arrangement with Tamar his daughter-in-law, who he had not recognized, thinking that she was a prostitute. He doesn't have payment on hand, so he leaves these items until he can have a servant return and make full payment. Now, of course, the reason uh, that Tamar takes all this was for her to be able to use later. My purpose here is not to get into the details of that, but to provide that as an illustration from Scripture of what we're talking about. The items were a pledge. They were a down payment. They were a guarantee that full payment would be made and the promises would be fulfilled. Although we would also have to say that the promises that were fulfilled in Judah which were much more than he was even bargaining for and even understood. But here's the point. The Holy Spirit himself is the security pledge. He is the guarantee of full payment of future promises which are ours in glory. God the Father has promised salvation to those he has chosen and adopted. God the Son redeemed us by paying the ransom price in His blood. And God the Holy Spirit is Himself the collateral, the security pledge, and the guarantee that all that had been promised will be fulfilled in the end. The word used here, inheritance, uh, speaks of God's portion in His people. And the everlasting portion reserved for us in heaven. You and I can enter into the enjoyment of our everlasting inheritance here and now by the ministry of the Spirit. Our worship, which is in spirit and truth, is but a foretaste of that which is to come. 
our communion with one another, our fellowship, our comfort, our joy, our peace. These all are a foretaste of that which is to come in glory. And the Holy Spirit is the seal which keeps us secure in our salvation. And it's a down payment. And it's this is the surety which guarantees your future inheritance and in glory. An inheritance which we will acquire possession of, again, to the praise of His glory. Literally, the acquired possession is literally until the redemption of the possession. The word which the ESV translates here, acquire, is the same word which was used back in verse 7, redemption. And so in in the Christian sense, this word has has to do with deliverance from the curse of the law and restoration to the favor of God. God has promised that that he, He will save us from our sins in Christ and that we will be given life in His kingdom. When Christ returns, you and I will realize our final and complete redemption. You and I are possessed by God. We're owned by Him. We belong to Him. We are His portion. And we will finally be redeemed in glory. And the Holy Spirit Himself is a guarantee that that will come to pass. This is another example we often call the already, but not yet. The inheritance is ours. We have been redeemed, but we will be redeemed. It is, but not yet. Our redemption, in fact, is so certain, and God, and God guarantees it as such, that it is already a present reality. And yet, it is still future in its fullness. In the meantime, God has given His people a surety, the indwelling Holy Spirit, as a first deposit, a, a pledge, if you will, until the time comes when He redeems that possession, which is already His, namely, His people. You and me. Which is to say, that the people of God are a treasured possession which He delights in. He delights to make full payment for. And when that happens, when the full payment is made, this will happen at the second coming, when we will inherit the kingdom of Christ and union with Him. And this is all, beloved, to His praise and glory. As we come to a close, as we consider this, these truths of of what God has done in Christ, but also in the giving of the Spirit, the, the possession that is ours, the, the, the security we have in Him. And God the Father predestined you for adoption, choosing you before the foundation of the world, that you should be holy and blameless. And God the Son redeeming you through His blood, providing you the forgiveness of sin according to the riches of His grace. And God the Holy Spirit having sealed you and is himself the guarantee of our inheritance. And all of this, Paul says, is to his glory. You see, your salvation from beginning to end is most especially glorious to God. God is glorified in what he has done, his mighty deed. In fact, 
This is our chief end, is it not? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. God has demonstrated His magnificent grace, and so our response is to be gratitude, to give Him all glory. In some ways, trying to conclude with a a, a nice, tight, wrapped um, application is, is hard in this, because really what's happening here is what God is doing. And what God has done, and all I can do is stand, I mean, I just kind of sat there thinking about today, is in awe. So that's what I leave you with. Be in awe of what God has done. That God, in this, in this, in, in specifically what we're talking about here, that the Holy Spirit would, him, would Himself be the guarantee of what He is already doing for you. And all we can do is give Him praise. It all to his praise and glory. Let's pray together. Father God, we stand in awe of you. We're amazed as we read just these first few verses of Ephesians. We're amazed of the salvation which you have worked out. From beginning to end, the, 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 the gloriousness of it. And Father, we pray that we may be people who are grateful. Help us to reorient our hearts toward you in all aspects of our lives. May we be shaped by our worship of you and not by the things of this world. We thank you, God, for these truths. We thank you for what the mighty work that you have done. We pray that your name is glorified by the words of our lips, the actions of our lives. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.